You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Matt Oliver, who's using Scala and React Native to build a social chat platform for anyone who watches live TV. Matt, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah, very happy to have you on. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your platform? Sure. Yeah. So I'm uh, Matt Oliver. I've been a software developer for the better part of a decade. Couchmate has basically been my brainchild for the past like almost 10 years. Um, It all started in 2013 when me and my friend were just watching the Indiana Pacers play and we were like, you know, we want to chat with people in real time watching TV and there was no good outlet to do that. Like, I mean, obviously we have Twitter, it's kind of a mess, like in the feed to follow live conversation. And then, you know, throughout the years we've had things like discord and, you know, some other kind of social platforms, but they either discovery is not as good, or it's just like hard to have like these live real time conversations around live TV. And so thus started my journey into building Couchmate and the, the thing about Couchmate is it's really followed the trajectory of like my personal um, career as a software developer. So I kind of started Couchmate, like I said, in 2013 in PHP and jQuery. And, you know, we just really got a POC together, but it kind of just fell apart and we went separate ways. And then in 2015, I did it in Java EE, just kind of the back end, just kind of doing more proof of concept work eventually then uh, was hired at the uh, Huffington Post where I learned about Scala and Akka. Redid it again in like 2016, 2017 uh, in Scala and Scala.js to a more complete version. But um, I was working with a different kind of friend at the time and it kind of fell apart. Then in 2018, I did it in Node and TypeScript with an Ionic front end um, and got closer to what you see today. And then in 2019, I ended up completely redoing it from the ground up again in Scala, Akka, and then a TypeScript React Native app with like a TypeScript marketing site. Wow, very cool. It kind of sounds like January 1st of every year, it's like New Year's resolution, rewrite site and new tech stack. Yeah, like it's, it's. I feel like I've hit a, a ceiling sometimes when I'm you know, in, in an iteration of it and where I'm like, okay, this is not scaling like I want it to or you know, it's just not as, as tight and as, uh, as clean. And, you know, it, you build up a lot of tech debt kind of as you're exploring these technologies. Um, if you don't have a lot of discipline and then this past iteration has kind of been where my professional skill has been to the point where I can take it end to end and, you know, make sane and, you know, cleaner design choices as I'm building it that, you know, will eventually scale and are scaling right now. So we definitely have a lot of great stuff to talk about there. But before we get there, are you the only developer on this project or do you have a partner also coding with you? Yeah, just me. Just you. That's awesome to hear that you've been doing this since uh, 2013. That's a, a long time to have a running project. It's awesome. At this point, though, is this something that you work on full time now or is it kind of just like a nights and weekends type of thing? Yeah, no, this is a completely in my free time kind of thing. I've had a you know full time job throughout the entire time to pay the bills. I mean, I would love to go full time and that's something I'm actively working on. You know, because it, it's hard to split your time. I mean, I, I got married a couple of years ago, like, and with life and friends and everything, like, it's it's hard to manage it. But, you know, like you said, I've been working on it for so long. This thing is near and dear to my heart. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something I'm very passionate about. So, you know, it's kind of something that's always going to be there. Yeah, I love to hear stories like that because it's so easy or, you know, maybe develop something for six 
months or maybe a year and it kind of just like fizzles out but uh it's cool to see something long lived like that yeah now you know you mentioned you are trying to get to this point where you can work on this full-time would you mind sharing some traffic numbers like something that would make sense for your application right like maybe for one of the most popular tv shows like what's the maximum number of people like in a chat room or something like that mm -hmm. yeah so um right now i'm really targeting reality tv um you know there's a couple different uh genres of tv that are very sticky like people are very passionate about their tv shows and my wife is a huge bachelor bachelorette fan so you know we just had the premiere of the bachelorette this past monday we had uh close to 15 people on simultaneously um and kind of one of my strategies is reaching out to people in the podcasting industry who do reality recap podcasts and starting to partnership with them to you know bring their audience onto couchmate and communicate in real time while their shows are going on so reality is one of the first genres i'm really targeting to you know kind of introduce people to couchmate very cool but now I definitely want to rewind and talk a little bit more about your tech stack evolution, right? It's interesting that you coded it in Scala, then you went to Node, then back to Scala. Mm -hmm. Do you want to like walk us through? Well, I guess that's like question number one. But question number two would be like, what was the experience like the second time you rewrote it, then the third and the fourth and the fifth? Like, did it become easier and faster because you just knew more about your domain and like, you know, the problems that you wanted to solve? Absolutely. So yeah, every every iteration has become much, much easier. And like I kind of said before, you know, this each iteration has followed the trajectory of, I, I'm currently a, a senior engineering manager at Major League Baseball. So like I have went, I started in QA, then I went into software engineer, you know, became a software developer, then slowly worked my way up into full stack. And now I'm a, you know, engineering manager. So like, you know, not like Couchmate has really informed a lot of my technical, you know, expertise along the way to this point where, you know, most people have their full-time jobs and learn on the job where, Really, it's been the reverse for me where I've learned by working on Couchmate and brought that to work because a lot of the stuff I've done with Couchmate is, you know, new cutting edge, things that aren't necessarily part of enterprise yet or, or you know, you take a lot less risk um, in enterprise, you know, versus when you're just working on a side project. So, you know, a, a lot of things around, you know, adopting TypeScript, um, go, you know, going all in on Kubernetes, um, a lot of stuff that's you know been a lot more contemporary i've been able to experiment with outside of work and then when work finally gets there you know i kind of already have the skill set and then can bring that into work to make things a lot easier so yeah i mean there's a lot it's a lot of time a lot of work to do it in your free time and you know it's 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 not for everybody you know there's a ton of conversation online around you know especially around hacker news circles about you know maintaining side projects and you know Finding time for them. Is it healthy to have side, proje side projects outside of work? Are you expected to have side projects outside of work? And it really depends on the person and you know, your motivation and your, what you want out of programming. And for me, like programming is a love and it's, you know, it's a hobby and it's also what I do for work. So it, under those circumstances, like, you know, I love to put in just a lot and a lot of hours outside of work into teaching myself, you know, what's coming up. But for a lot of people, like that's not what they want to do. So that, you know, to each their own. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I definitely have some friends who they just want to go nine to five and there's no side projects at all. But me, I'm more similar to you where, yeah, it's like what I love doing. So I kind of do it in my free time as well. Not like 24 seven, you know, just side project work, side project work, but a good part of time. Sure. Yeah. So do you want to walk us through maybe what it was like to initially code this in Scala, then decide that you wanted to rewrite it in Node and then go back to Scala? Like, what was your decision around that one? Yes, so when I joined the Huffington Post in 2015, 2016, um, I, I, in high school I learned Java. 
the JVM was my first kind of like, you know, in, introduction into programming. And so going into the Huffington Post, like I knew Java and Huffington Post was a scholar shop. And so when I first got into the Huffington Post, like I, you know, I, my, 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 my mind was a sponge and I was really kind of like taken by the, the, the skill in terms of my coworkers that was that were using Scala, and one of my coworkers, you know, really kind of took me under his wing and like kind of just answered all the questions I had and like really introduced me to a lot of functional programming, reactive programming, like just this whole world of things coming from an OOP background. Like I wasn't exposed to, and I was like, oh my god, like this is amazing. And at the same time, like. I'm upping my JavaScript skills. I'm, I'm dipping into, you know, more reactive paradigms around uh, JavaScript, like RxJS or Ramda, stuff like that. So this kind of, I had this like functional revolution, I guess you want to say, um, for a couple of years while I was there. Um, however, like, you know, Scala is a very opinion, well, it's, not, it's, it's ironic because it's not opinionated. However, the people that use it are very opinionated. Um, Scala is a language where it provides so much flexibility out of the box in terms of your coding style, um, the different paradigms that you want to implement, whether you, you can go fully functional, you can go fully object oriented, like it, it really opens up doors into, you know, how flexible you can make a language in order to implement you know, your ultimate goals. Whereas other um, languages are, you know, more rigid, there's a lot more boilerplate. It, it, it's it's there's just a defined set of of ways to do things where in Scala it's a lot more flexible and so the to kind of I guess uh, fully comprehend the the problem you know, or the uh, the solutions to accomplish a problem within Scala it takes a lot more time to master than I would say like a Java or like I mean JavaScript to a certain extent um, but it's just a lot harder, I would say, to master Scala than it would be to another language. And so when we first did it in Scala and ACA in 2016, it was really my first kind of foray into, you know, building a full-fledged backend application in Scala and ACA. And it, it, it was amazing because I kind of learned the, the, the true potential of, of implementing an actor system and how robust that can make your application in terms of, like, you know, recovery from failure. I mean, their their slogan is fail fast um, and, and fail constantly. Really just kind of opened my eyes to, to this whole new thing. Then fast forward to kind of, you know, 2017, I I was, I, I left Huffington Post and I worked at Accenture for about a year and a half as uh, like a senior front end developer. And so I was fully in, I was doing Angular 2, so I was fully in TypeScript. I hadn't touched Scala for a while and it was kind of time to rewrite CouchMate again. And so I was like, all right, I've, I've done this in Scala. I've, you know, I'm, I'm deep into JavaScript right now. I feel pretty confident, you know, that I, I know JavaScript at a very deep level. So let's try to implement CouchMate, you know, in pure isomorphic JavaScript. So I had a Ionic hybrid front end um, app and then a, you know, JavaScript node backend, all TypeScript. Um, and... I love JavaScript. I love TypeScript. I, I love how it's evolving as a language. Um, it just is, it's good at certain things and not others. And it's, and like doing your normal kind of express stack, you know, it, it's good as a, as a proxy layer to, you know, other more complicated, like other 
frameworks and other languages that are built to serve more um, specific needs, right? Like essentially what I try to do is I try to replicate Akka in JavaScript. I tried to make something similar, you know, to what I was implementing in in Akka in in Node and and obviously there's no actor system kind of on Node at this point. However, like this concept of a finite state machine and like encapsulating state, you know, within your application in these small chunks and, you know, an actor essentially was something that really stuck with me and something that I tried to replicate in Node and I was able to successfully do that. However, it wasn't scaling well. I was rolling my own essentially kind of like actor framework that hasn't seen the light of day, but it's something that I want to kind of take back up eventually because I think an actor system on Node would be awesome. And I think it would really help the the case for more server-side JavaScript. Um, but like it just was turning into a mess. And at the same time, I was implementing a... I'm, I'm fully into the whole kind of centralized state management within your front-end applications. I mean, I'm completely on the Redux train and, and all of the different variants. Um, I think especially for applications that have large amounts of state, like, you know, it's important to control that and be able to change that and keep track of how state changes are happening on the front end. And so I was also doing this kind of what I call SOS or state over sockets where I would have a persistent WebSocket connection to my Ionic app and I would literally just like send Redux actions over the wire. The WebSocket will be piped directly into my reducers and like you would basically control the entire app from the back end because I was like, let's just see if I can drive all of this from the back end because Couchmate is is completely real time. Couchmate is essentially like, it, I dynamically create chat rooms behind the scenes for every single live TV show that's happening within in the United States and Canada right now, like, you know, constantly. And so the very nature of Couchmate is entirely real time. And so I was like, I'm gonna pick, you know, a, a concept of, or the concept of WebSockets, which is, you know, completely um, dynamic, and I'm going to adopt that essentially throughout the entire app, both front-end and back-end. I tried that, like, it it worked, but it, it I could tell there was a lot of cruft. It, I was, like, kind of just, you know, I, after the MVP was done, I was like, all right, this, this works, but I'm not going to be able to scale this out. Adding features took a long time. So then I eventually made my way back to Scala, I like went full in. I completely adopted Akka. I had done it before. I I had all the lessons learned from the first time, and now like it's something that like I'm super proud of. Like I feel like I've really covered the entire kind of spectrum in terms of how to implement like well-defined paradigms within like Akka, the actor system, and within Scala. Like yeah, that's really it in a nutshell. Well, long-winded nutshell. Right. No, that was a very good explanation. Lots of great things there. And by the way, like you said, you make all these channels in the background for every TV show in the U.S. and Canada. Like roughly how many TV shows are going uh, every night? Tens, uh, tens of thousands. And so it really depends on your also your TV provider, too. Like, you know, if you have over the air, you only have like 30 or 40 channels. If you have something like, you know, YouTube TV or Hulu, you know, you don't have more than 100 channels. If you have something like DirecTV, we're talking thousand, you know, thousand plus channels. And and every channel, like, you know, you have during prime time, I mean, you take a thousand times, let's say, you know, 10 shows, you know, you could have 10,000 shows in a couple hour block period. I'm not, I, I don't like, 
it's it's more on demand. So if you once you enter in a room, like that's when the room is created. However, like integrating the EPG or the electronic programming uh, guide, like you know what you think of TV guide, the channel grid, you know, and and kind of pairing that like on the back end with uh, essentially all of those those chat rooms are actors in the back end, persistent actors. Um, and you know, you, if you can kind of model it that way, like each user is an actor, each room is an actor. So like, I mean, it, it helps kind of break it out more logically in the back end. but yeah, at any point in time, you could have tens of thousands of shows happening, um, you know, within a couple hours, which is really exciting. Yeah, definitely. I am not that, that, that familiar with Scala and Akka, but is Akka an actual, like a framework or is it more of just like a series of libraries that give you the actor model? Because when you think of like web framework, like Express or whatever, it's like the idea of getting middleware and like you can hook in like a templating, uh, you know, if you want to do server-side templating and stuff like that, does or session management, does Akka give you that stuff as well? Or do you use something like play on top of this or nothing? So Akka positions itself as a toolkit, like in their marketing. So they say they are a, you know, they, they have the base kind of actor framework, um, which yeah, I would consider like it is. It's like an express or something like that. There's things like Akka HTTP and a bunch of other like complementary libraries that that add additional you know things on top of it. But I consider like Akka itself and the ability to spawn actors, and it just just inherently is, is somewhat of a framework. Like they have a bunch of add-ons like doing more distributed things, doing more fault tolerant things, um, you know things around monitoring stuff like that that you can tack on similar to Express middleware. Um, but like, usually when you're using Akka, for the most part, like Akka Core, like you're attacking on Akka HTTP and a bunch of other things in order to make it more of a fully fledged framework. Now, Lightbend, the company behind Akka, does have other solutions like Lagoom, I believe, which is more of a kind of complete solution that uses Akka underneath, but it is more of like a spring type framework. Um, I feel much more comfortable using the underlying kind of Akka core and, you know, complementary libraries just because it gives you a lot more flexibility in terms of how you build out your stack. Okay. And when it comes to the actor model itself, though, is this the idea of like every single HTTP request that comes in basically runs as its own process, but not like an OS process, like a super lightweight run where you can have like hundreds of thousands of them running? Correct. Yes. They're not actual threads. Um, the the actors themselves, they they call them essentially like lightweight threads, but no, there's multiple actors running on, on individual threads. Um, however, yeah, the, the, the actor model, and it's interesting because Swift in w, WWDC kind of just announced like their implementation of, of actors within Swift. But the, this concept of actors, essentially you have a concurrency model where you're encapsulating like logic within this well-defined actor. And to communicate between actors, or if you want to like really, really simplify it, to communicate between threads, you're just doing message passing, right? You're saying, I am going to pass this message to this actor, and I'm going to get a message back. So you have this kind of you know request reply concept, right, that is highly concurrent, like where you don't have to worry about locking threads and doing stuff like that. You are simply just passing messages back, waiting for them, or you're just firing and forget if you don't need to wait on the message. So yeah, it's a it's more of a concurrency paradigm. And you could, you're we're starting to see it more kind of federate out into other languages. But yeah, it's just a way of, of managing concurrency ultimately. Right. Sounds very, very, very similar to how the Beam works, like the Erlang VM. 
Exactly. Exactly. So earlier you mentioned that, you know, before you went the Scala Akka approach, you were using WebSockets and basically just, you know, pushing stuff to the front end. Do you still use web, WebSockets with this setup too? Absolutely. So like I've evaluated, what would you call them? Just different kind of connection modes. Like I've evaluated server sent events and WebSockets and long polling and stuff like that originally when I was like, how is this, how am I going to communicate over the wire? And, you know, for the longest time, it's just, it's, different ways of thinking communicating completely over WebSockets. Like the way that your backend has to interpret and interact with your front end, because like Couchmate, there's no, there's no REST API for Couchmate. The entire thing is over WebSockets. And so this is where using things like actors and using paradigms like finite state machines become incredibly easy because Essentially, what happens is, you know, you send, you know, you initiate the WebSocket connection from the app to the back end, right? And then the app is essentially waiting from an ACK from the back end that we've connected. And then you start to, the front end starts to pass messages back into the back end. And depending on the current state of your user actor, it defines what messages are valid or not valid. So, like, if you log in, you have a certain set of messages you can pass back that are, will be interpreted by the system as valid. And then you can, you know, you can upgrade your your state of your actor into a different kind of accepting a different set of messages, right? You you move between these different states within your actor, in order to you know respond to messages that pass through the wire. And so the reason why I really adopted WebSockets just be, is because it's much easier to integrate with Akka and this concept of an actor to a user. It's much more, in my opinion, just a cleaner way of executing commands on the back end versus a traditional REST API where you have requests coming in from a user. You know, they're, they're stateless, right? Like, I mean, you could do sessions, but like it, traditionally now they're more stateless. And you're trying to figure out within this actor system, like what is the state of this user? And it's much more complicated with traditional REST where if I just hold a, a, a persistent WebSocket connection open, to my app, like I kind of can maintain that state and like react to the state in a much more ergonomic way, in my opinion, than like if I would implement a traditional REST API. Now, I'm building a whole back of house admin portal for Couchmate for, you know, the B2B side of the business. And that I'm implementing an entire kind of GraphQL layer on top of, you know, my data model. So there eventually will be a kind of GraphQL endpoint to access Couchmate data, but in terms of the application itself and the data access from the application, it's always going to be based on WebSockets. Okay. And what do you end up using for a transport layer from client to server? Are you using JSON or something else? Yeah, it's all JSON. Okay. Do you maybe want to go over a couple of Scala libraries that you've used to help build this application? Like what are some handy ones that are maybe not built into Aga? Yeah. So, I mean, like Aga Core is just the main kind of, you know, one that you, if you want to use Akka, you're going to use Akka HTTP. I like obviously use for my HTTP layer. Like I use Postgres, you know, as my database. So, you know, and I use Redis. So I use Jetis and um, just like uh, the, there's like a Java Postgres kind of access library that I use. I, I did kind of POC using Akka streams and using like more like stream based, observable based kind of like access you know, methods against the database because I want to be everything to be non-blocking, right? I leverage a lot of futures 
within the, the code base. It's almost all futures, but if I could move to a much more kind of like stream-based approach, I feel like ultimately that would make things a lot cleaner and a lot more like easier to follow on the back end. But right now I'm all just using futures. On top of that, let me, um, a bunch of, I, I've built a couple libraries. Like I, I had to roll my own like Scala to TypeScript transpile, transpiler because like the, I use SBT as my build system. So there's a couple, you know, build runners within the Scala community, SBT being one of them, Mill being a new one. Um, SBT is definitely like, I think the, the, the most kind of pervasive right now. But for my app, right, like I want my TypeScript app to be able to interrupt with the backend when messages come through, like I want to be able to, you know, parse them into types or like leverage types against them. However, like I'm on, I, I'm on Scala 213 um, and none of the current Scala to TypeScript transpilers, SBT plugins supported 213. So I essentially had to roll my own um, and that's an open source project, Scala 2TS, if you, if anybody has the same kind of, you know, need, but that's something I rolled, I rolled a like, um, you know, you see in some like deployment systems, like for deployment or like deployment names, it'll be like random adjective noun, like just mm -hmm. names, right? Like I rolled my own, like kind of in Couchmate, you can join it completely anonymously. And so when you join anonymously, I sign you a completely random adjective noun name so I rolled like a little like you know random name generator let's see like so there's there's a couple like so enums in Scala 2 aren't necessarily the most ergonomic thing so I use enumeratum for like handling with enums which is incredibly useful um, like things like bcrypt and you know just a couple other just kind of like quality of life things um, I mean, I guess with Akka specifically, like I use a ton of like distributed like type libraries. So like, you know, persistence. So essentially like if an actor goes down, like the failure modes around Akka are so well thought out. Like if an actor goes down, its state is stored in Postgres. So when it comes back up, it replays its state and like things just kind of come back. So like that's Akka, Akka clustering, Akka um, persistence and uh, cluster sharding. So that's a bunch of stuff I use. Um, I use a bunch of stuff around discovery. So like, you know, when the actor systems boot up, I run in Kubernetes. So like it's able to bootstrap the cluster and successfully kind of come up. I use Mailgun behind the scenes. So like I got some Mailgun stuff supported. Um, you know, I, I have to interface with the um, Apple um, like APM or the, the push kind of stuff. So there's stuff with interacting with Android and with Apple's kind of push notifications. But yeah, that's that's kind of like I use you know Jots to like do like kind of some stateless authentication. So there's some utilities around that. Um, it's not like it's not crazy like outside of the ordinary, outside of like just implement you know using Akka itself. But like that's something I wanted. To, you know, I, I know we kind of wanted to touch on too was like you know deployment and 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 Kubernetes especially because that's something I'm a huge proponent of, even though it's you know, kind of a religious debate in, in tech right now. Right. Yeah, we'll definitely get to the Kubernetes setup. But for your application itself, maybe just to paint a picture for folks listening there, you have the Scala Akka backend, and then you actually have a mobile app using React Native for the front end, but there is no there is no browser app, right? Like it doesn't run in a web browser? 
So not right now. However, I have been using React Native Web behind the scenes. There's like there's just not 100% parity between React Native and React Native Web yet. I, and I say parity in terms of libraries that you leverage for React Native don't necessarily have a web counterpart or a web like ready version yet. So as I've been making the React Native app, like I've you know had to kind of toe that line between, you know, am I gonna be able to support this for web? Am I not? Right now there's some missing things from web, but initially when I was, you know, working on this iteration of Couchmate, I was testing it primarily in browser. So like I would say it's probably a little broken right now, but like there's full intention to completely bring this to the web. And it's probably like 95% of the way there. It's just kind of validating that the libraries that I'm using with React Native are compatible with React Native web. Nice. And then for the app itself, it's basically it, like user authentication, you know, people can sign up and log in and also chat rooms where can they also browse for, I guess they can browse all the different chat rooms based on like some category categorization or no. When you, when you go into the app, the essentially the, right when you boot in, you're presented with like a TV guide grid. So like, just imagine you're on your cable top box or you're on your TV, right? And you go to the guide and you see channel numbers, you see airings. That's exactly what you're going to see when you go into Couchmate. However, you're gonna see a couple like different things or just like little tweaks here and there. You're gonna see kind of these notches on each room, which are red or green, depending on if the room is open or not. But the, the goal for Couchmate is to bring you into the chat room as fast as possible. So everyone knows what a TV grid looks like. So you simply just tap the show and it brings you right into the chat room. And so the categorization by default is by channel number, which is kind of the default, you know, when you would open up your set top box guide or whatever like however there are, will be different ways to kind of organize the grid depending on you know if you have a favorite channel if you want to see you know you want to sort the grid by the amount of people that are in you know rooms and stuff like that like there will be ways to do more discovery but right now it's just your kind of run-of-the-mill typical you know listed by channel okay and then yeah when users join they get that random name like whatever, you know, like a vegetable nostril malfunction or some crazy name mm -hmm. like that. Yep. Uh, but then, but then can you register to get your own name then? Yes. Yes. So you can register via email. Uh, you get to pick your own name, you know, names are globally unique. So, you know, join and get your name, lock it down if you can. Um, but yeah, no, there's the, yeah, you can completely register. And so what happens is when you join Couchmate the first time, right? Like I slot you into a default provider. You know, we have providers like YouTube TV, Comcast, Over the Air, your typical, like, how do you get your TV channels, right? When you join Couchmate, I don't know who you are. I only really know some very, like, high-level location information. So depending on what time zone you're in, I'm slotting you into, like, a very default listing. However, if you register with Couchmate, you get to pick your own username. You also get to select your local provider. So when you register, you can put in your zip code, and you can pick like if you have, if you live in you know Phoenix and you have you know Time Warner or you have like uh, Hulu right like you have local channels in Phoenix, and so you could you're able to change your provider and then get your local channels. But off the bat, you have a very generic kind of listing which has all of the major you know networks and you know popular channels. Okay, and then for your end, like coding wise, did you just reach out to these providers like through an API to get their listings? So yeah, so I ha it goes through one data provider. I use Grace Note, 
Um, and they provide the entire EPG data uh, to me. So I use that to dynamically build the grid and then kind of, you know, know what shows are happening and, and build the chat rooms essentially off of that. I mean, I normalize all that stuff into, into Couchmate's data model, but yeah. Nice. And then for all of that data, do you just save that all locally so you can present it to the user without making like external API calls every time that page gets loaded, right? Correct. Yeah. We, I normalize it and store it in Postgres, cache it in Redis. Um, so that's readily available. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like a really, really good use case for Redis for caching. Cause like that data just doesn't change, right? No, it doesn't. And the only thing that really changes is the user count. So there's like a dynamic portion that is like not cached. However, like everything else is that, yeah, completely sitting in Redis. Like, so it, there are instances where like program listings will change for instance, like, you know, the NBA, you know, postseason, right? Like, you know, they know that these games are going to be at these times, but they don't necessarily know which teams are going to be in that slots. So the, the, the listing providers will change the listings. And then at that point you have to bus cash and serve like the correct information. But other than that, the listings themselves are very static. Right. Now, for that, for those dynamic bits, like the count of the users, do you just get that information as a separate uh, request? Although it's technically like an HTTP request, but, you know, just separately. So, uh, yeah, it's actually, when you connect, like, I essentially, so this was a problem early on, but, like, you can imagine, right, if you have, like, all of these users that are, like, requesting this dynamic content, like, every second, right? Like, you don't want that. So what happens is I have, like, a singular actor behind the scenes that depending on which users are logged in and the providers that they are requesting this actor will every second pull the database and will message everyone the updates which then trickle down to the app so i'm only accessing that information one time in one place instead of everybody accessing it independently of everybody else yeah that sounds really cool also something whatever for whatever reason like triggered my memory from 10 minutes ago when you mentioned how Aka will behind the scenes just like save the state of a user for you in Postgres. Is that like really, really hands-free behind the scenes? Like, you know, for example, if someone were to like fill out, I don't know, maybe the chat field, right? But they haven't sent the message yet, but they get disconnected for whatever reason. When they resume that connection back, is that like chat field's going to be filled out for them? Yeah, no. So that that's more of like a client thing, not necessarily within Aka. Like the state that's within like Aka in terms of a user, it's essentially like more high level things like what's their provider like what like you know uh what it, were they in a chat room so like if you if for whatever reason like you, you lose internet right and like you come back into the app it will automatically boot you right back into the chat room because like i have like certain types of state like kind of saved off within the user itself but if like you were like filling out a message and like you know you close the app like i'm not persisting any of that stuff within redux but like that would be pretty easy to implement, but it's really like, yeah, yeah, okay. that, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So by the way, just a heads up, do you want to give us a maybe a rough estimate before we move on to the front end here for the back end, like, you know, number of lines of code or number of modules or whatever, if you have just a rough idea. Yeah. yeah. So in the back end, I have about like 25,000 lines of Scala. Um, and in the front end, the apps around like 11,000 lines. That's just for the app. Like I have a little like marketing site that runs on TypeScript and next to, but like it's, it's not, it's not more than a couple thousand lines. Okay. And do you have both of these, uh, the front end and the back end in separate repos or is it a mono repo? Yeah, they're in separate. I've done the whole mono repo and all the things I, I believe in mono repos, but like for certain situations, like just it wouldn't work. And especially for like, 
like non-isomorphic apps. Like if everything was JavaScript, I think it'd be much easier to make the case to have everything in a mono repo. But for for my setup, no, they're in separate repos. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And by the way, you know, you mentioned you are using Postgres, and you mentioned you are using like a built-in Postgres library for Scala. But do you happen to use something like? Uh, an ORM or like a functional and relational mapper, like whatever the terminology would be? Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so torn about like ORMs and, you know, there's a bunch of different flavors of ORMs and the level of ORM-iness, right? Um, so yeah, I actually use Slick. So um, within Scala, there's a, there's a bunch of like data access libraries and different flavors of, of how ORM you want to go. And, and within these libraries too, like you can write raw SQL and just execute that on the database and send it over the wire. Slick really leverages like the language itself in order to do query kind of rendering. So, you know, there's a lot of, of, of ways that, you know, essentially you can write just plain, um, it's more, it's, it's like link, it's similar to link, but like it's, it's using kind of the, the language itself and the library will kind of interpret how you're using the language and it will create queries off of that. There are instances where like I'm leveraging that, but then there are instances where I have to write raw SQL just because the queries are too complex or, or I need the query planner to execute in a certain way. Um, you know, so like ORMs are kind of a blessing and a curse and it's not like a full ORM, like, you know, a, a spring is gonna give you or a hibernate, um, but it's it, it kind of gives you a little flexibility if you wanna do, you know, more kind of like case class to table mapping, however you still want to write raw SQL for certain things, you can do that in Slick. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like you can do things like user.filter email equals like foo at example.com and then dot one or something to get a single record, like that type of stuff. Yeah. It's, it is similar to that. Yeah. Okay. And do you happen to use any dedicated, uh, like a database migration tool, like Flyaway or something else? Yeah. So I actually wrote my own. <laughs> Like I, so I've, this has been a, I actually, I actually just did this because I was using some, like, there's a couple kind of native Scala libraries. There's like Slick Migration API. There's, um, oh God, I'm blanking the, uh, another one that leverages it. But like they, the thing with Scala is like, there's, there's a lot of these kind of fringe kind of concepts like database migrations or other things like this, where, you know, there, there are library support, however, like maintenance of those libraries is very hit or miss and it, it it's hard sometimes to like find a solution really that you know works for your specific instance like like a flywheel obviously like if you implement it it's battle tested like it's going to get you exactly what you want however like i have looked at it and i was like there's a ton of pageantry and stuff around implementing flywheel that is just like not worth it i need something that's much more lightweight something that kind of plays with slick because a lot of my stuff is written with slick and I just need like, I need a migration table with an integer and a time committed, right? And so I, I took a bunch of like inspiration from Flywheel and from like Slick Migration API and a couple of the libraries and essentially kind of rolled my own that like has been working decently well. Nice. So do you happen to also use that tool at your day job as well or no? No. So I don't write any Scala in my day job. Um, yeah, I, I'm completely JavaScript at uh, Major League Baseball. Okay. Yeah, I remember you mentioned that, but I wasn't sure if there was another switch to a different employee after that, and then it was full-time Scala. No, so at, at at Huffington Post, like I don't, I honestly don't remember. I I mean, th because like I worked on a lot of like the contributor platform stuff, so like 
they use Mongo, and I honestly don't even know if they had a database migration like solution. Um, but yeah, no, not that I can think of off the top of my head. Okay. So maybe now we can switch gears a little bit and talk more about the front end, specifically using React Native. Uh, firstly, do you want to go over why you chose to use React Native versus uh, building direct native implementations for Android and iOS? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I I consider myself a polyglot, you know, programmer, and I love learning new languages. However, time is very precious, and I can only learn so many things. I, I would love to learn Swift and I, and I know Java and I've, you know, written Android apps in Java before and I, I would like to try it in Kotlin just to see what it's like. But like, I don't have time to maintain two disparate code bases and the kind of the, the, the guiding premise of building a hybrid app is the code reuse and the, the simplicity, you know, of, of if you're doing isomorphic, you can do it between the client and, and the server. But like just the, if you know JavaScript and you can and enables you to write a an app in both platforms, like that's such an amazing value proposition that it it's it's what I it's what I had to do almost by necessity because just you know like we've kind of said I'm the only person working on this and in order to maximize my reach, like I want to be able to ship to iOS and Android, you know, so I don't so people don't miss out because. You know, a lot of startups will just focus on iOS, right? Because that's where, you know, the U.S. market is at. But, you know, Couchmate is, could you know, TV is ubiquitous everywhere. And, like, I want the Android app to be there. And especially, like, with hybrid apps, like, you maintain the same experience across apps, like, for almost for free. So, you know, there's, like, you do lose some, like, platform uniqueness in terms of you know, between iOS and Android, but like there's just the, the value prop of going hybrid aside from the potential performance issues you might write, run into is like just so good. Like it's, it's hard. It's hard for me unless your app is like super, you know, you need to leverage AR kit or you need to like, you know, use some, you know, library that's part of the platform and there's no React Native support. Like it's hard for me to see like real justification in going in going native. Right. So it sounds like probably for most folks out there, use something like React Native. And then if you happen to grow to the point where you're ridiculously successful and profitable, then maybe, you know, if you really need to go go native on each one. But I mean, at that point, it's like super far down the line. Right, right. Because this gets you what, like 98% of the way there? Yeah, no. And like, yeah, and I don't have like crazy performance, you know, uh, needs right now. Like if you have a ton of, yeah, so it's it's more just kind of data, like flying back and forth. So yeah, it's it's good for now and it, it works completely fine for now. Nice. Now, I am actually not a mobile app developer, but funny enough, I'm just starting my first one and I also chose to use React Native as well. I haven't gotten to the point where it was like writing code yet, but it seemed like a very cool technology. But you know, earlier you mentioned a little bit how there might be like some potential performance concerns. Like, have you run into cases where it's like, ah, uh, you know, this table view is a little bit slow because I'm using React Native, but it would have been faster with a native app? Yeah, so the virtualization options within react native and i think this is just like a just hybrid issue too because i can counter this also in ionic is you know you're really at the whim of the implementations of the hybrid frameworks right like and and react native ships with its own list virtual virtualization implementation there's a couple other third-party apps that you know try to do virtual lists um and you know they are 
especially for chat apps, like they're not super flexible. Um, and so in, the, in those cases, like I've had to come up with strategies in order to kind of limit, you know, how many messages are saved on the front end, you know, the, the speed at which they're coming through because there you get some artifacting and stuff stuff when you have high throughput chat rooms and you know you're trying to render a lot of messages so yeah I mean that's that and that's kind of what I'm alluding to is like react native 99% works for all of these other use cases but there are specific instances that you know if you have a lot of data or you have a lot of visualizations or you have just a lot going on and it's harder to get closer to metal of the phone like you could potentially run into some performance issues okay yeah actually that's a really good point that you brought up about the incoming chat messages because at what point do you draw the line to clear out the buffer like how many do you keep on the front end yeah so i kind of went back and forth with this like because like there are instances where people like want to scroll up and want to see messages. And if I'm like capping it at 50 messages, you know, and I'm tossing the rest, like you, you run into really strange UX issues when that happens. So like, I have to kind of get creative is like, if the user's scrolling, I'm buffering like an extra X messages because I don't want the list to be jumping around or stuff like that. So like, and a lot of these are trial and error. So it's as you know, you kind of arrive at these use cases and these, you know, these, these issues that come up, you're like, okay, well, how do I kind of strategize around this on the platform? Because like I said, you know, you're at the whim of how React is implementing, you know, these certain features. And, you know, if there's not another drop in replacement, like Flipkart has a virtualized, you know, list implementation. However, it's not just a drop in replacement for the React virtualized list, React native virtualized list. So, it takes some like kind of trade-offs. Like I'm gonna roll with this for now because like I'm not at crazy scale, but down the road I know that this issue exists and it might be something I have to go back and refactor eventually. Right. I love that idea though. Just basically do what works right now and then deal with it when it's an actual problem instead of trying to deal with it before it's even close to a problem, I guess. Right. But here's another question related to this one. Like this is again maybe like a future problem type of thing, but I don't watch reality TV, but I would imagine it's a really popular thing. Like could you in theory end up having something like, you know, like 8,500 people in one of these one channels, like at a time, like how would you go about breaking that up? Would you put, put them in like, like numbered channels or something? And then like a user can jump between whatever channel that they want. I love this question. Cause like, this is something that I've been thinking about for such a long time. And I, and I, and I, I think I found some interesting solution. How, so right now, every room that you go into, you start in hashtag general. So you just start in the general room for that show. However, I implemented this feature called hash rooms. So like similar to like Twitter hashtags or like, you know, hash type behavior, you can create rooms off of the show. So if you're like watching The Bachelorette and you wanna just talk about like one of the contestants or you wanna talk about the host or you wanna talk about some like theme of the show, you can create a hash room just by simply in the chat box typing like hashtag like contestant name or you can go to like the create hash room kind of button and like you can create that hash room and it plops you into a, a, a siloed room off of that show that's just kind of focusing on that specific topic and you can invite people directly to that hash room you can like like i said you could post the hash room in chat people could click it and go directly to that hash room so yeah there is federation of rooms via hashtags within a show 
On top of that, like, yeah, like you said, even in general, like, you could have thousands of people in there. And so I've kind of started coming up with strategies on how to do that because, like, I'm sure, like, you and anybody else who, you know, hears about, oh, here's another social app that's coming out. Like, I really don't want to replicate the issues that we're kind of seeing at scale with, like, Facebook and Twitter where you have these every voice is visible at one time it's and like you know it's it's hard to really kind of separate the noise from like what you want to hear and so like how do you create these smaller experiences without like without the UX kind of showing you you're in a smaller experience like people still want to be part of the larger kind of group but like if we could do behind things behind the scenes like if if like kind of what you were alluding to if you go into general behind the scenes if we say we cap it at 50 right so like the hashtag general might have 50 sub hashtag general rooms with like 50 people in each in order to like have the conversation be more coherent and like you know substantive like that's something that i've been kind of thinking about but the hash rooms themselves are kind of the first step in like trying to give people a more organized way of having these real-time conversations potentially at scale where it's not like a a youtube a youtube live situation you know where you have that chat box on the side of a youtube live video and it's just like bedlam or in twitch like twitch chat sometimes is completely unreadable because like you have one chat room for it one live thing right and like it's not fun like it's fun to see people reacting but like when you have thousands of people in the same place like that is not like a it's not conductive to like you participating or like people who are on the fence participating because you're just shouting in a room full, full of people yelling so yeah that's something that i'm definitely trying to think about and i've started to try to implement features around yeah it's really cool to see that you're trying to solve that because that twitch problem is totally like a real thing right it's like if you're in that in a, in a Twitch room with, and there's like 28,000 people in there and you just type a message, it's like by the time you type that message, you're like already like 600 messages back in the buffer because everyone else is chatting. So it's like it, at some point it's not like, yeah, you can't individually chat at all. Right. Exactly. And that's something I don't want. Like that's like the whole goal is like bring more community feeling to live TV because the whole premise is that I feel like it la it's lacking and like it's hard to have those experiences in the moment with other people watching. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's going to be kind of crux to pulling this thing off is like helping people arrive to that feeling and doing it in a way where you're not, you're, you're making them feel like a part of the larger community while still having more like smaller, you know, conversations. Yeah, for sure. So now let's talk maybe a little bit about the app itself. Like, do you know roughly how many screens you have? Yeah. So it's, there's not many. There's, I probably have three screens um, that are pretty heavy. Um, like I have really the grid. It's, it's insane. Building a TV listing grid is a very complex process. So, and, and that's where I have to leverage virtualization because if you have a thousand channels that have multiple, you know, shows and time slots, like I ship, uh, four hours worth of listing data. Um, and let's, let's say like you have 30 minutes, you know, per show times a so you have four times 4,000 for one hour slot. And then you have four slots. Like we're looking at 16,000 shows for like a four hour grid. Like that's a lot of data. And so I, I've had, it's been an iterative process to like figure out how to like segment out this data, how to virtualize it, how to like make it, you know, so it's, it's scrollable and it 
it's not lag and it doesn't blow your phone up. Um, so that's a heavy one. Yeah, no, that's really funny because I remember when I used to go over my aunt and uncle's house, they had all sorts of different premium channels and like their TV guide channel was like, you know, 850 different channels mm -hmm. you can watch and just navigating that grid was like a full-time job. Like you can be looking for stuff to watch for like two hours. Yeah, know? it's crazy. Exactly. Yeah. So, and there, so there's also search, like there's freeform search in Couchman. So when you load up the grid, like you can, you can search for the channel name, the call sign, like the series name, the episode name, like, so there's a bunch of ways to try to like wrangle the grid because it is like really hard and eventually there's going to be like a bunch of like tag search so if you just want to find movies you just want to find you know an mba team like um you could do that um so the grid's pretty heavy the profile screen is essentially where you're managing all your profile stuff so like that's where you're doing your registration you're logging in you're doing forgot password you're changing your provider you're managing your notifications so like within couchmate you can follow a series or a sports team or a show. So like, let's say you, you really like, you know, the Cleveland Cavaliers, you can follow the C Cleveland Cavaliers and whenever their show or whenever the game is going to start, like it'll send you a notification and you click the notification, you go right into the room. There's that stuff. And there's a ton of like more safety privacy feature stuff. So like there's like word block lists, user block lists, um, stuff like that. So if, you know, people are trolling and stuff, you just mute them they're gone forever so that's profile and then we just really have the chat room um and it's you know it's it's actually lighter than you would expect because there's really just the 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 room the box right and kind of like there's some detailed information on the show and stuff like that there's user lists who's in the room um you know there's like tenor there's some tenor search like some gif stuff because you can post gifs in the in the chat um but yeah that's that's really it Cool. That's definitely some interesting stuff that you brought up there, especially about the gifts. But before we get there, when it comes to the profile stuff, do you allow folks to upload like an avatar image or do you generate like a random one for them? No, not yet. There's no avatars. It's just text name. I'm I'm still trying to figure out like how people are going to use Couchmate. And like that's kind of, you know, where I'm at. I'm starting to do like a lot of user acquisition. And like I said, I'm reaching out to podcasters. But like, and like I've kind of said before, like I want to avoid a lot of the pitfalls with you know, other social platforms. And I really want Couchmate to be like, you're here for the conversation. Like there's no, there's no user friending right now. There's really no kind of connections between users. It's really just like this shared experience that you're in. Eventually I want to add that stuff, but like I haven't really invested a lot of time into like the personalization of your user profile at this point, just cause like that stuff we can add a easier down the road. It hasn't really been a priority. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Focus on, I guess, the core problem, right? It's just like folks wanting to talk to other people in real time about the show. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned that, you know, people can upload GIFs. How do you deal with that one? So it's so I it's through Tenor. So I use the the GIF provider Tenor, which Discord also leverages. I think they're owned by Microsoft. But yeah, so I mean, I, I want people to be expressive in chat. So you can post like emojis, you can post GIFs. Like I feel like there are some things with chat that are table stakes. Like, and I'm a heavy, heavy user of Slack and Discord in daily life. And like, those are really my references for like what Couchmate needs to provide just at bar none, because people are gonna expect these things when they join. They're gonna wanna post GIFs. They're gonna wanna post emoji. Like you need to have an emoji picker. I had to build emoji picker from the ground up because those are surprisingly hard to build. Um, like there are, there are just things that like you need to provide. You can post, you can post links 
and like there's like link previews that get formed from posting links. So like I'm still I'm still experimenting with like how like I said before how people are going to use it and like what really brings people utility in in regards to like chatting about TV. I wanted to provide tools in the beginning that like are, are, like I said, table stakes for any other chat platform and kind of just see where we go from there. Right. Did you ever have to deal with uh, bad actors? No pun intended, like actual <laughs> real people, bad yeah. actors um, in terms of like uploading or sending links that don't make sense for the chat room that they're in, like self-promoting or up- uploading things that shouldn't be uploaded. Yeah. So like I have like turning off links is super easy. Like, and there's a ton of stuff around moderation that I have like ready to go in terms of things like backend features in order to do larger scale moderation. Like, like I've kind of been, like I'm kind of repeating myself here. Like I want, I don't want to fall into the trap that other social networks have had to deal with. Like moderation at scale is probably one of the hardest things in social right now. Like, I mean, how many stories in the news constantly about Facebook and farming out moderation to Accenture and like, or whoever they're farming it out to. And, you know, just the horror stories about human moderation. And I honestly don't believe human moderation scales at all. I think it's futile. I think you need to develop tools to give to the community in order to moderate. And there's a certain amount of like, you know, uh, I think leeway, if you're going into social, like you need to realize that like one, like, not everyone agrees with what I believe, right? Like there needs to be a space for people's voice within reason, right? But like, you know, there's a fine line between, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a hard line between like really bad stuff, right? And like, but like borderline opinion and like, you know, being for people to be able to express themselves. But no, like how, like how do you constrain conversation to like the show, right? And you really can't. Like the chat room is a canvas for the people that are in the room that are that should talk about the show. Like if it diverges from that, like that could be very natural because like that that room at that point in time is made up of these kinds of people and they're having this conversation. Like I said before, there are strategies in terms of like more group moderation. So like if a certain percentage of people mute a certain person, there's like auto kicking. Or like if you get kicked a certain amount of times, there's like auto banning, right? Like there are like these more like behind the scenes or things that you don't even really realize that you're doing that are affecting the moderation process in Couchmate. But like, it's still very much a work in progress just in the industry at large to like figure out like how much, how much freedom are you giving people on your platform to express themselves? Um, and how, how do you take actions against those? I mean, Apple has a very, to, to, for me to get Couchmate on the app store, I had to implement very real things in the app before they would even let me put it on the app store, like reporting users, reacting to, to reports, um, you know, giving users the ability to like delete messages out of the chat, to mute and ban people, like, I, or to just mute people. Like, I, I mean, I had a lot of stuff in there, but like, I, I commend Apple for like, at least like, getting there and like, you know, going through my app and like, and make sure those features exist. Android was a joke. Literally, they didn't barely review anything. Um, but yeah, but I mean, it's, it, it's a really, really hard problem to solve. And like my, my kind of take is like, I want to give people the spaces for TV to like have conversations. And there's a lot of stuff on TV that evokes 
hard conversations. That's one of the like, you know, kind of man, I don't want to say mandate, but like there's a lot of stuff that happens on TV that like messed up and like and deserves to have hard conversations about like or like they <laughs> like people are nude or people are whatever. Like how do you you know, how do you I don't know, how do you at what point do you draw a line? And I think like that's just going to be a complete learning process for me as like couchmate scales out. And but like I think it's a it's a a very very interesting problem to have and it's one that I'm like really excited to kind of take on. Yeah, it'll be cool to see how that pans out if things get start to get like really really super popular. So by the way, on the topic of building the app, the front end itself on the React Native side, do you happen to have a, a list of a couple packages that you've used to help build it, as well as like some custom functionality that you've built? Uh. Yeah, sure. So I use Material UI. So I uh, I love leveraging. I, I mean, I do a ton of CSS and stuff in my free time. But like, if there's you know time you can save using a component library to use it, like use it. So I heavily leverage Material UI and tweak it to my needs throughout the app. Um, like I said before, I use Redux on the front end to do a ton of like centralized state management. Um, in a in a prior life in the Ionic app, I like heavily leveraged uh, Redux Observable, um, which I'm a, a huge reactive guy, and I think Redux Observable is a great library if you use Observables and you want to use that with Redux. Amazing. Um, I don't use any side affecting library in the current iteration. However, I'm sure I'll throw in like Redux Thunk or Promise eventually. So there's, I mean, there's a ton of. I always recommend if, if you're going hybrid, look at React Native first because it is i think you know the most mature at this point it is the most i think it has the most community support like i said before i've done ionic i i was huge into angular 2 when angular 2 first came out and i like was fully in on ionic i love i love angular i love i okay let me rephrase i like angular 2 angular 1 was terrible even though it was you know it was the start of the spa movement or at scale Angular 2 was awesome, um, but like React really has kind of, you know, eaten the front end world. And so there's just so much more support, community support in the React native world. So like there's a ton of stuff around like, you know, keyboard manipulation libraries that I use. Um, there's like, so I use React navigation to do a bunch of like, you know, screen navigations and I, I have deep linking into the app. So like I mentioned before, you can link people directly into rooms um, from your current room and you can just like share that out to people. So there, there's a bunch of deep linking stuff built in. So I, I, I don't know if like you've looked into Expo or if like you're gonna leverage Expo and you use a React Native app, but I, I, I used the managed workflow of Expo in the beginning and I ended up ejecting because one, the the app sizes were just too big. I think like pre-eject, I was almost at 100 megs for my IPA for iOS. The Your binary size matters because like if you have people sitting there like waiting to download your app off the app store, like no one wants to sit around for like two minutes while you're downloading like 150 meg, like, you know, Uber, or I forget it was Uber. There was a story that came out where it's like, you know, they had to hack their way to like get Oh, I forget. I don't know if it was Uber, but somebody, some large Fortune 500 had to hack their way out of, Re out of React Native in order to slim the binary size down because it was too big to submit to the App Store. Like, I just was like, okay, I'm going to eject and I'm going to use a bunch of the Expo stuff, like just as libraries, not in the managed workflow. Um, and so I still, you know, 
leverage a bunch of things like Expo Keep Awake because when you're in a chat room, I want to keep the screen on. Um, you know, there's stuff stuff around the splash screen and the status bar um, that I use. And then like, so there's a bunch of, I do, you know, a bunch of side nav stuff. So there's a bunch of libraries like React Native, like um, side menu um, that I use to do some like detailed stuff in the in the room. That's really about it for the front end. Okay. And then what about for potentially virtualizing certain devices to use a specific tool or ID for that? Uh, so yeah, I use IntelliJ for everything. Um, well, I mean, I have to use, you have to use Xcode to a certain extent if you want to run the simulator for your, the iOS portion of your thing, of your app. And I also use like, uh, like Android Studio, but like I primarily code everything in IntelliJ. And if I have to go into Xcode or into Android Studio to like run the emulators, like I'll leverage that. Okay. And speaking of emulators or maybe just device compatibility, do you have like a minimum version for Android and iOS that you try to stick to? Or do you kind of just throw out whatever works, whatever works? Um, Like I think for, oh God, I'm not sure that off the top of my head. Like I think for Android, like I'm four versions behind the the, the latest. And for iOS, I, I couldn't even tell you like which version I support, but it's it's... Whatever the iOS, whatever the iPhone seven and up runs on. Okay, so do you find yourself thinking about that though? Like, oh, I wish I can use this one feature, but really can't because it's like, well, it's only available on like the latest phone. Um, I I personally have not run into that. No, because like to be completely honest, like a lot of the stuff that I use is not too far from like the beaten path, um, and that has a lot of like support. You know, no matter what like versions you're running on, I have like honestly never had any issues with react native on any kind of like back support for stuff that has still a sizable market share and that's kind of like like i mean i did this kind of exercise like a while ago like what's the market share at for these different ios versions or for these different native versions i mean ios users are pretty good at updating but android you know you kind of have to go back a little bit farther um but i i can say like i've never run into any compatibility issues like going back to past versions Nice. So maybe now we can talk a little bit more uh, about the deployment side of things, right? You mentioned you are using Kubernetes and uh, DigitalOcean. Do you want to maybe go over first uh, the thought process behind choosing DO versus other providers? Yes. So I've toured all of them. Um, I mean, all of them. Every single one of them. No, no, no. Every (laughs) single one. I started in AWS because who doesn't start in AWS, right? Like that that was back in like the Huffington Post days, right? I was running on Elastic Beanstalk um, and... Um, Elastic Beanstalk was fine, but I needed to graduate from that. I needed to like have more control over like the networking stack. I needed more control over the interop between like the database, right? I needed them in the same VPC. I needed, you know, to throw in, I think I started doing some stuff with lambdas. I needed everything kind of like in the same space. So then I started using CloudFormation and oh my God, I'm so happy I don't have to do CloudFormation anymore. Like there's a ton of solutions on top of CloudFormation in order to manage your CloudFormation JSON and like do just a bunch of crazy things. Like I was leveraging like these JavaScript libraries that like you could essentially, it was getting close to like a, a Terraform type experience where like, you know, you have your infrastructure in code and it just renders out into uh, CloudFormation JSON. Um, but like I, I finally got away from AWS cause like it just got way too expensive. Like I, I appreciate AWS for what it is. And someday I I would 
wouldn't mind going back if I had the funding and like the space to implement CouchMe on AWS. Um, just because the you know the the amount of options in terms of the products that they provide are just limitless, and the you know there's it's battle tested. After that, I moved to GCP for a hot sec because after I kind of so I was on Elastic Beanstalk in AWS, then I finally moved to ECS, and ECS was okay. That's before oh god, what's it called? Fargate launched, but I then Kubernetes started getting big, and I was like, okay, I want to see what this is all about. And fell in love with Kubernetes. And so I was like, okay, well, GCP and GKE, Google made Kubernetes, so I'm going to move. And we started adopting uh, GCP at MLB. So I was like, all right, I'm going to try, you know, GCP out. And it was fine. It it just, I don't know. It, it, it wasn't as expansive as AWS. And I didn't get a lot of utility out of the supporting services outside of GKE. And there wasn't, like, they have, like, a... CloudFormation type solution, but it just wasn't as a, approachable to me to be able to roll out my entire infra using it. I forget what it's called. So I was like, eh. I looked at like leveraging Terraform to kind of manage that a lot more. And I do have some like Terraform in my stack to manage some like DigitalOcean stuff. But I was like, this is, CouchMate's not at this point yet. What I really only need is I need managed Kubernetes. I need some managed DB and I needed the ability to manage a DNS. And so I'd used DigitalOcean before and their UI is just gorgeous. It's so user-friendly. Like the pricing is no nonsense, which I'm like, I was happy to get away from AWS because of that. So my billing was very predictable. The feature set was small enough that it was very easy to comprehend and it had really just what I needed. I mean, I started using the their managed Kubernetes when it was still in like beta um, and it had some growing pains but for the most part like it's pretty much there I mean there's some things I wish that they had like you know resizing node pools with different you know instance sizes and stuff that's still kind of a little you know or like or like for their managed Postgres like I'd love to just to resize disk and not like have to bump up to a whole new pay tier but like those are small kind of criticisms to, you know, things that I was dealing with on these other cloud providers that, you know, are, are manageable for now. Okay. And for like stuff like the node pool resizing, what's the workflow looking like now? Like, do you need to just spin up a completely new set with a new instance size and retire yes. the old ones? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 That is a little lame, but yeah, uh, I guess it is what it is. For yeah. You. It's fine. Like it's, it's, and yeah, like you said, it is what it is. Like, you know, a little bit more manual work, which is, you know, at this point, like it's fine. So I, I, for all that I gain from using DigitalOcean, like these minor annoyances are minor and like I've had like a pretty positive experience with them up to this point and it's been years since I've been using them. So, you know, I, I would definitely recommend them for people who are just starting out, who need a small feature set and, you know, who, who need more of like a, you know, a fixed pricing model because that's important for me since I'm completely bootstrapped. Yeah. No, I feel the same way about Dio. I've been using them forever. Really like them. And they're not even like a sponsor of the show, just like their stuff. And what's really cool about their managed Kubernetes too, right? It's like you don't need to pay to actually have the managed Kubernetes. Exactly. Like you only pay for the nodes. Well, so yeah, that's, I have a minor criticism about that because yeah, you don't pay for the control plane, which is great because on AWS and GCP, GCP just announced it, I think two years, a year and a half ago, that you're going to have to pay for that now. But um, the, they, this isn't thoroughly documented, but like 
the master control plane nodes are based off of the node pool that you create. So if you create a hobby sized node pool, your control plane is the same size. So like at, in the beginning when I was trying to, cause I use Helm to deploy my whole app. So when I was trying to deploy a ton of Helm charts into my cluster, the API, the control plane was bombing out because like it couldn't handle executing all of the Helm, like the, the, the rendered Kubernetes configs from Helm. And I was like, what is going on? So I had to go through the whole support process and they finally told me like, you need to up your node pool because the control plane's too small. And so, okay, then I get it now. But you know, those are the kind of little things where it's like, okay, like I get it. I wish it was a little bit, little bit more documented, which is ironic because Dio's documentation is pretty good. Um, but yeah, but again, on the whole, it's been fairly positive. Right. Yeah, I think every provider has its own weird quirks with that. Because I know I tried EKS as well, because I have a client who uh, is on there, and I just started setting up a cluster there. And it turns out that you are limited to the number of pods that you can run based on the instance type that you have. Yep. So if you just happen to have like a Tito Micro or something like that, I think you can only run something like four pods on it. So I found myself like with a bunch of pods that couldn't get spun up after installing things like Cert Manager and mm -hmm. the ALB, like control mm -hmm. uh, load balance or whatever. And yeah, before you know it, like my apps weren't coming up. I'm like, why is that? And then I found out, oh yeah, it's because I can only spin up four pods per node. Yeah. Same with, G same, same with GKE. Like we run the same issue at work. Like the instance size manages, it's like, it's like a hundred pods like per instance. And it's like, and, and at a certain point you run out of IP space because like you have a ton of pods requesting a ton of IPs and if you haven't set up your VPC and your networking stack correctly, like you easily can run out of IPs, which is crazy. So like, yeah, I mean, there, there are those caveats that, you know, whether you're at like your scale or even like what I have to deal with at, at MLB scale, like there are these really particularities that like when you hit them, you're like, why? But like you get it. It's just like frustrating, right? That it's not easy, but. Yeah, I guess on the bright side, and I'm still like fairly new to Kubernetes, but it wasn't that hard to track that down just by looking at like the event logs of the pods, like the errors were pretty descriptive, like, hey, you can't start because unknown, like, you know, it was, it was, it was good error. Right. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a complete Kubernetes disciple. Like I would much rather deploy into Kubernetes and have to deal with like what I had to deal with before, like in terms of just like. Like, I, I don't even know what I was doing, like, before. I mean, just the, the deployment patterns, and I know, like, a lot of people, you know, in the tech crowd, you know, feign nostalgic about, like, you know, deploying with, like, Chef or, like, Ansible charts or whatever, like, you know, and they say it's a lot easier, it's a lot, you know, less complicated than Kubernetes, but, like, I, I completely take the opposite where, I you know, you have a Docker file, you have some Kubernetes configs, you completely like describe your entire stack, right? And you can deploy it anywhere and it's it's so easy. And I, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I always try to advocate for it whenever I can. Right. So earlier you mentioned that uh, you are using Terraform for some of the DO bits. Do you want to just go over what components that you're using that for? Is it just for like setting up the cluster and DNS and maybe some other things like manage Postgres and Redis? Yeah, yeah. So like most of the infrastructure is under Terraform. Um, and I mean, I it's just another like kind of automation tool that just is has such a great value add. Um, I mean, like at Couchmate scale, it really is just a couple of Kubernetes clusters, a couple of databases, a couple of Redis, you know, managed Redis instances, and a couple, you know, I, I do all my DNS and stuff through um, 
uh, oh god, well I use Cert Manager and I use um, oh my god, what's the Kubernetes DNS? Uh, I think it's just external DNS. Yeah, external. No? Yeah, yeah, external DNS to manage all that stuff, um, which is which is fine. And so I ran into this like earlier too. Like I want to use Cloudflare. Right, because I want all of Cloudflare's fun DDoS protection and like analytics, and they have a ton of really great like products within their like you know offering that are great. But like, I also like had some requirements too. Like, I want to serve my app from the Apex, and I want to do you know I want to do some other stuff. And like, so originally, like I was trying to point Cert Manager at Cloudflare in order to go into my DigitalOcean clusters, right? Or like I wanted to leverage Dio Spaces too because I wanted to serve my marketing site out of spaces. And I couldn't like, I don't know, there was there was issues trying to like leverage an external DNS provider within like Dio's current kind of offering about how they, you know, set things up. And I like can't specifically remember the issue I was having, but I ended up going all in on Dio DNS because like, Again, it's fine for now. Like eventually I want to move to Cloudflare because like I want a lot of their fun stuff, but like, you know, I can wait. I know it's possible. It just takes time. Yeah. A little more important to have your app working before exactly. you can have the fun stuff. Yeah. So as for the Kubernetes setup, I'd be really curious to hear what it was like for you to go from not using it to being all decked out using Helm charts and basically like, you know, the end game. Right. Yeah. So I... I, I picked up uh, Kubernetes in Action, the um, oh, who, who, uh, the uh, Manning book, and I, I want to say like, and I know this is gonna sound like the most nerdy thing, but like that was such a page turner for me. Like everything made sense as I like went through that book about like how like easy it was to deploy all this infrastructure that I had been fighting with in AWS. Like how easy it's to spin up a load balancer, like how easy it is to like like highly distribute your app amongst like a ton of different nodes. Like before then, like it was, seemed like such a black box about how all of this stuff was kind of supposed to operate. And like Kubernetes just helps abstract those concepts and like, but like you use them within a, the Kubernetes cluster, right? Like all of these kind of concepts get distilled into just this small package, right? Or this paradigm. And it just like, it made so much sense as I read this book. I was like, oh my God, like this just seems so much easier than I've been doing it before with cloud form formation. And so, yeah, I, I like went all in. I like converted all my stuff. I mean, I started using Minikube. I started testing out locally, like was a breeze. Um, and I think like over time, like it's definitely been, you know, there are, there are more complicated bits than others. And there, and as you start to go into these more complex deployment, you know, abstractions like Helm, or I use Helm file too, to manage Helm, um, you know, and before when they had Tiller, you know, now they have Helm three and there's no Tiller. Like it, it's been a, you know, the, the community, the Kubernetes community is still, I think kind of maturing. Um, you know, when I jumped in, it was still very new, um, but, it's been fun to evolve with the community and see where things have gone. And I like, I just think it's, it's it, the, the, the failure modes of Kubernetes in terms of like a pod goes down, it comes back up. Like 
you can specify, you know, your replicas very easily. Like you can, it's, it's once you set up the foundation, scaling is just almost free, right? Cause all you need is that, I mean, then you get into like horizontal, you know, auto scaling and like pot or node auto scaling. And like, you can really like take the framework of your app and bolt on all these other things. And like, you have now a highly available, like auto scaling app, like that you don't have to think about anymore. And the amazing thing is you, you partner Kubernetes with Akka, like Akka deals with like failure at the application level. So like if an actor goes down, Akka already like automatically brings that actor back up. And especially if you have persistent actors, you get those actors back with their state. If a pod goes down, Kubernetes will automatically bring that pod back up, right? And like your cluster is back to, to green. Like, so it's just been fun to see like these technologies that I've kind of adopted, like start to complement themselves in ways that like I didn't really imagine at the beginning, but like now that it's mature, I'm like, I feel like really confident in, you know, that, you know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not going to get paged that like something's blown up because like, it's, it's a very self healing process, um, which is, which is cool to kind of see. Yeah, no, I basically agree with everything you said. And fortunately for me, I didn't start early on with Kubernetes. So by the time I started like a couple of months ago, there's already a lot of great resources out there and all like Helm 3 was already available and it was very easy to get going. Like it was not hard at all because there was just so many great docs and books right. out there. And now they have like things like uh, K3S, right? Like they have slimmer versions of Kubernetes where they don't have all of like the um, etcd bits and all that stuff like that, you know, you can run a little bit faster than you used to. I mean, in the very beginning, right, you had to stand up the control plane. You had to like stand up etcd. You had to like do all this crazy stuff, right? And like, and eventually we've kind of gotten to this point now where it's very like hands off. A lot of people are revving on the idea of Kubernetes. So like, it's fun to see a lot of innovation in the space. Yeah. So you mentioned you are using uh, Minikube locally. And that's one of my favorite things about Kubernetes, by the way, like 90, whatever, 5% of it, right? You can just run locally the same as you'll run on any provider. It's really just like the ingress stuff that's a little bit different on any every provider. But what made you go with Minikube in the end? And do you happen to use like the Docker provider for that? Uh, like I, I just used Minikube because like it was like the only... <laughs> solution at the time to like stand it up locally um so i so i use it in the beginning to like test out like my kubernetes stack essentially my stack right now is pretty mature so i don't really use minikube much locally anymore because like i i really already have like the foundation of the architecture set and like it's you know i have a couple environments in the cloud like you know i'm really only focusing on like my app in isolation so i'm just kind of running both apps, you know, outside of their container, like just raw, you know, executing them. Um, but like the 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 great thing about Minikube was like, yeah, like you were saying, like being able to stand up and like POC your deployment, like without having to deploy it into any kind of provider. Um, and it just made so much things so much easier. Like if I had to do some experimentation on like failure scenarios of certain things, you know, pods go down and I want to see my app react in a certain way. Like I would absolutely reach for Minikube and like just start, you know, chaos testing my app locally because you can do that. And like, you can't really do that with a lot of other, I mean, you can, but it's just much more involved and there's much less infrastructure there to give you that opportunity to do that. 
Whereas with Kubernetes, like it's more of a concept and you have these pieces that implement like this concept, right? And it's, it's really easy to get going. Yeah. It's also really cool how like, yeah, the self-healing aspect is amazing. Cause I remember one time I was starting up a service, but I just forgot to apply one of my secret files and like the service didn't come up. But like, as soon as I applied the secret file, well, Hey, look at that. The service came up on its own. It was like, I didn't have to run like five commands to get it up and running because like a dependency wasn't there. It just like knew what to do when, when it was available. Right. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. It is, it is, it is truly like, I think one of the most like important, like kind of pieces of software to come out in the past, like, I don't know, five or 10 years that I think is like somewhat religious. Like, I mean, if you're a regular on hacker news, like, you know, the community is like divided on at what point you need to use Kubernetes or like the utility of Kubernetes. But like, you know, there's so many success stories in the wild of like, it, it alleviating so much time and by extension money that you just don't have to deal with like those more manual infrastructure tasks that you had to do before. Right. So you mentioned you are running a couple of nodes on your cluster. Do you want to go over maybe some of the details about that uh, node? Like what are the sizes of them? Yeah, they're, they're, the they're, they're, they're all the same. They're like, uh, <laughs> I mean, so this kind of goes back to being bootstrapped. Like, you know, how much can I kind of get by without having to pay a lot? So they're like, I think like two vCPUs, like like two gigs of RAM, like, and I have like three of them up just to have like some high availability. Um, so they're really nothing special. Um, so SBT, the build runner that I use for the uh, for my Scala app, actually kind of does all of the packaging of the container uh, and everything itself. So like my CI essentially like kind of automatically builds and pushes the container out into GitHub. So I use the GitHub container registry. Um, and then when it go, when it deploys out into the cluster, it will just pull from GitHub and uh, apply new versions. Nice. By the way, before we get into that whole like deployment process from beginning to end, do you want to just go over like how you deal with secret management? Yeah. So uh, right now it's pretty, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> non like interesting i like so i i hold a lot of secrets in the uh, uh github kind of secrets management in their in the actions kind of part of the of github so like i have a ton of just like environment variables that essentially helm kind of intakes during the during ci cd and then renders the uh helm files with all of the you know secret information and then deploys them out into the cluster so I don't have anything like um, um, Vault or anything running in the cluster to manage secrets. Okay. But now, yeah, let's rewind and, and go over your deployment process, like starting from uh, development, right? So if you were to develop some feature in the back end, like where does that start? Is that like a feature branch and how does it get up into production? Yeah. So, I mean, I like primarily work on just the trunk because I'm the only one working on it. And I mean, I will do feature branches for huge kind of changes to the code base. But like, you know, I'm not as disciplined in my free time as I'm at work. So yeah, I, I do kind of my work on just, you know, whatever the main branch is, uh, push that into GitHub and then I run completely on GitHub Actions. So I actually migrated from GitLab to GitHub um, a year and some change ago um, because Actions really have come like on, you know, have matured and are amazing. And especially if you leverage GitHub as your, you know, your, your, your source repository, like the integration between actions and code is just seamless. And so I, 
I went from a self-managed GitLab instance with its built-in CI to GitHub and Actions. And and one of the, actually the primary reasons too to move to Actions was they support OSX runners, which like when I'm, so I leverage Fastlane for the hybrid app because I need to build, you know, my Apple iOS binaries and like to be able to leverage those OSX runners is like huge because I think they were the first like big provider in order to do that because before I had to build the app locally um, and deploy it up into um, the, you know the App Store Connect right to push out the test flight or whatever like um, and that was a pain and so like being able to actually have the app as like fully automated in CD is like pretty like such a time saver. Yeah, for sure. So right now, your CI, does it go all the way end-to-end then? Like, does it go as far as pushing the app up to the App Store? Yes, yes. So, yeah, it goes completely end-to-end. I, like, make a change to the the React Native code base. It goes through its entire, like, CI. And then, yeah, it will leverage Fastlane. It will push the binary into um, the, you know, for Android, it's into probably, like, the test channel. For iOS, it's into just, like, the, you know, unpublished state right and i can either push that out to test flight or i can promote it into prod um and you know it's pretty much hands off from there it's it's t- getting fastlane to the point where it's at has been a huge lift fastlane is not the most approachable product or piece of software however if you get it working it is it saves you so much time it's crazy but like it is a beast to get it to that point yeah i haven't had a chance to work with it yet so I haven't seen its pain points yet. But I'm curious though, how do you deal with keeping your back end and front end basically the same, right? It's like if you do if you do a front end update, it's probably going to expect the back end to be a certain version because maybe that just responds to a certain type of of event. Do you just coordinate your deploys to make sure they're both available at roughly the same time? Yes. Basically, yes. Um there's no like any kind of like versioning concept in the code base yet. However, that's like something I'm like actively looking at. Um, but I just like it's been just a something that I just haven't had a lot of time to like really sink just time into really and it's something that is incredibly important because like it once you hit certain scale right like you are going to need to manage your chain your, your deprecations of certain fields or like your certain events like in a more well-defined and like migratable fashion like right now it is a very brute force like you need to update the app right to like be able for it to work and like that's obviously not the most scalable solution and so you know i'm almost getting to the point where like the changes are small enough to where it would be okay but like that's definitely something on my radar to explore in the future about like how to implement some kind of same you know system around that right so have you gotten into any like deep researching on that yet like what what do you think you'll go for or you just haven't gotten to that point yet i think there's going to have to be like there's going to have to be some mapping between so there's there's a couple different versions to handle. So actually, Redux has a versioning library where you can version your state and do migrations just within Redux itself, which I do leverage. So if something in Redux, the shape of state changes, we can do migrations pretty easily after you push a new version. If you then download the new version, it will automatically like migrate the local Redux state. 
there, I think in the future, there's going to have to be some mapping between, you know, what version of the app you're on and what version of the models that are coming from the back end that you expect. And there's going to be after some, some kind of mapping or migration framework built into the front end to order to, you know, and in the back end, essentially, like if you're sending an old event, you know, manipulating that into the, the new version or whatever. So like, so there's local state migration, state migra change migration, there's over the wire, but then there's also migration within Akka. So, you know, like we were discussing before, like I use Akka persistence. The persistence is based off of the shape of the actor, right? At that point in time, but the shapes of the act, these actors change. Their properties of these, they're essentially classes, right? Or they're called props change. And so, and they must be binary, binary compatible from version to version of your application. So like there's also like change management that has to be done within the server and Akka as well. And so there's a couple places to try to be cognizant of that. And like, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of running kind of like, you know, at the hip with like some of this stuff and doing things more brute force, but it's some definitely something that like I have to be cognizant going forward once there starts to be some kind of persistent scale within the system that like, there needs to be more deliberate actions around these things. Right. So this is one of those things where it's like not necessarily a problem now, but probably in the future deal with it then, but have an idea at least for now. By the way, you bring up Akka again, reminded me of one question I forgot to ask you about the Kubernetes setup. Uh, and it comes to like deploying a new version of your code base, right? We all know with Kubernetes now, it's pretty easy to get like a rolling update strategy going, but how do you ensure that clients like reconnect to the same nodes like if necessary to get that state if it's there what does that look like do you have like sticky sessions uh enabled with the load balancer or no yeah no i don't have sticky sessions and that's this is one of the amazing things about akka is like it doesn't matter so it doesn't matter what nodes you are connected to um as i do rolling updates akka itself is bringing down actors with the, that are on that node and it is dispersing them to other available nodes and so if, an, if a node goes down that your WebSocket is connected to, there's re, retry logic within the app to keep re, reconnecting to the backend. You could connect to a completely different node. And because I save your user state within Postgres, your user gets rehydrated onto a new node when Akka knows that node you're on went down. You're automatically back on a new node. And, you, and your WebSocket connection could connect to a node that your actor isn't even a part of However, you're still, you still have the same state. So like, that's like where the distributed nature of Akka really shines is like, it doesn't matter what node your actor is on. The system knows how to route your messages to your actor, no matter the, sh the topology of the current cluster, which is amazing. Yeah, that is amazing because yeah, it's almost like, well, you do get the full benefits of like a stateful web application, except it's actually stateless and the state is in Postgres and it doesn't really matter. Yeah, that's awesome. So maybe now we can talk about uh, the opposite of awesome, right? And just talk about how you plan for disaster or unexpected events and, you know, bad actors, malicious users, all that fun stuff. So you mentioned you are using the managed version of Postgres from DigitalOcean. Do you have that set up to do like automated backups or do you do something like a SQL dump instead? Yeah, I, I do automated backups. I do dumps before migrations, like... I'm actually going through a massive migration right now to change over my biggins to sequential UIDs in order to support like cursor-based pagination through through GraphQL. So like that's a huge thing that I'm going through right now. But um, 
yeah, I mean, the database like side of things, I'm not as worried about because I'm pretty confident in the kind of backup strategy with that right now. With you know, with Redis, like you know, I think it just being there, like and being able to provide like caching, like there's not really like cold cache is kind of a if Redis does go down, that is a pain because like there are some queries that I have that like are meaty and like take potentially seconds that are not good in terms of a UX, like client waiting, like especially around the channel grid. So, you know, if Redis goes down, like that's an issue because it's going to put a lot of strain on the database. Um, but I've tried to mitigate a lot of that by like making the query simpler, like doing in-memory caching in like the app itself. Like if Redis goes down, things like that, just to kind of guard against failure. The, on top of that, like failure of the application itself, like while Kubernetes is still, you know, it is somewhat mature. There's still, you know, there's a bunch of, I think there's a whole GitHub repository dedicated to weird Kubernetes failure modes that have happened that are just like head scratchers. And especially around like the um, the add-ons, like I've had issues with like cert manager a lot, like just not working, like not a, not updating certs. And I'm still trying, trying to really debug why. Cause like, you know, that's a huge issue. Like if my cert expires, like, stuff just stops working. So like, that's something that I'm like, just trying to actively watch and like bouncing the pod seems to like clear things up, but like, that's not a good problem to have right now. So around these pieces around Kubernetes are things to like watch and just kind of be mindful of that. Like, you know, these things can fail in really weird ways. Um, I do eventually want to do like some chaos testing around it just to like see what happens when crazy stuff you know, is going down. There are there are some of the, like edge cases around Akka um, that I've kind of approached that I didn't really plan for in terms of like the sizes of messages or you know um, different kind of there there are there are these concepts within like actor I don't know, I don't know if it's specific to Akka but like split split brain issues for instance like if you have a large cluster and like a piece of the cluster is unreachable like what's the who's the leader in the cluster like there's always kind of a master you know um node like and so there's some interesting failure modes around akka and how to deal with those that are somewhat well defined but i haven't really been at the scale to hit those yet so those are things i have to think of kind of going back to the cloudflare you know discussion like yeah there's some issues around like potential ddosing and stuff like that where i'm kind of naked at like you know a, the cdn level or at the dns level that like eventually are going to have to be rectified bad actors within the system i think is going to be something like kind of we discussed before that's gonna you know be a very persistent thing throughout the life of couchmate like analyzing how people use the system is going to be you know critical analyzing people as they move throughout the system as they congregate on the system i'm sure like twitter and facebook you know whatsapp telegram a lot of these like social chat communication apps are doing a lot of like deep analysis on like how individual users or how cohorts of users are using their their system in order to like find potentially bad actors or bad groups you know trying to be malicious and trying to mess with things and so like i'm pretty cognizant of like those things but like you know right now i'm not that skilled but it's just kind of when you get into this pool or industry like these are things that like you have to think about because once you get hit like you have to be ready with a solution and or or you could easily sink and you, 
your startup goes bye-bye. So yeah, I mean, there's, I think right now it's like, there are things that I think about, you know, while I'm just kind of working or just kind of keeping them to the side, but cause I'm not really at that skill, but eventually they're definitely going to need to be addressed. Right. So on the topic of like keeping track of what users are doing, do you have any logging on the back end where you kind of just write that to somewhere that you can look at later? So yeah, I have a whole metric stack. I use Prometheus and Grafana on the back end um, to do kind of more high level monitoring. So I have like system level monitoring where I can, you know, see the health of the nodes and um, like what, how Redis is doing and, and stuff like that. I also have, I use, I leverage a service called Common, K-O-M-O-N, which is a JVM and almost kind of like Scala ACA um, specific monitoring solution. Um, so it does a bunch of like JVM, um, JDBC, ACA level monitoring of your ACA app basically. And so um, they're like a, a you know, for pay service online, similar to like a, um, like a data dog or like a, you know, I also use um, Sentry on the front end to do kind of like failure monitoring of the app side of things. So yeah, I have some like, you, you know, utilities in place to start to identify some of these trends. Um, however, like I'm sure a lot of the stuff, the more advanced stuff that I kind of mentioned is going to be more homegrown. So I kind of mentioned before I'm building this whole kind of admin back of house system that's going to have a more in-depth look into really like getting into the nitty-gritty of how people are using Couchmate. Okay. And then for like the Grafana setup, do you have that running in your Kubernetes cluster also? Yes. Yep. That's sitting alongside everything else. So for that custom admin that uh, you are writing now, is that just like another component of the main application or is that going to end up being a totally separate like Scala Akka app that you run, like a, its own service in Kubernetes? No. Yeah. So it's going to be, so it's also going to be another static site that's like a, a TypeScript next site. So both of these sites are going to be hosted on Vercel. Vercel is, makes next essentially. And like they, you know, are, are like a full fledged company, but no, this is going to be a completely separate app that um, uses the GraphQL uh, kind of layer that I'm building on top of Couchmate. It's going to be used for admin purposes. So it's going to be, you know, monitoring users, like, you know, editing parts of the system. Cause right now, like I, I'm, editing things directly on the database, not scalable. So like I'm building kind of like a front end on top of, of the database, you know, to do more advanced kind of manipulation or like monitoring. But it's also gonna be the kind of B2B side of Couchmate, which is, you know, if ABC or if, you know, a production company wants to get a live view of how users are using or like talking about their content or what, you know, how they're interacting on their network, they can go in and they can see real time, you know, like what the trends are in terms of the conversation. Like they're not gonna be able to see like specific user information, but they're gonna be able to glean like, you know, people are reacting to the show, people are reacting to this ad, things like that. So it's really kind of like the business side of the house. Right, I think that's really cool to have that as a totally separate app because now you don't need to like redeploy your main backend, you know, just for something like that. Mm -hmm. So you can have free reign to go crazy and if you need to like deploy five versions of it in a day, you don't have to worry about it. Exactly. Even though technically, at least in theory, with Kubernetes, you shouldn't have to worry about it in either case because of the rolling restarts, but still, still a good idea. Yep, yep. So by the way, with this setup here, do you have any monitoring set up to where like, you'll get notified if the health of your cluster is starting to get a little bit sketchy? Like, oh no, we're at like 90% CPU load on all the nodes. Yeah, so I have like some, I don't, I don't leverage PagerDuty yet, but I have a bunch of stuff. I have like a Couchmate Slack and I have a, like alerts and like I have a bunch of stuff piped into that like Slack channel. Um, I also do leverage like alert manager, 
which is like a companion part of the Prometheus, um, I don't know, collective, right? Um, so I leverage Alert Manager for like really, really critical things. But like, there's still just really not enough skill to worry. Um, and I'm like, I mean, I'm working on Couchmate every day. So I kind of have my pulse on like what's going on. Um, pretty consistently um but yeah there are some like notification channels to ping me if like you know i mean or good things are happening like if i have 10 percent more users than i've ever seen before in a room like i get pinged or like you know just general metrics i do have like a notification pipeline for that nice also on the topic of notifications do you have like an external site pinging your backend like maybe like a health check endpoint to make sure it's really returning like a 200 yep 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 so i uh leverage pinged them um, I have, like, if you go to couchmate.com, there's, like, a status page. And also in the app, if, like, for whatever reason, like, the back end's down, you get a note, like, you get, like, a, a pop-up on, like, the loading screen that says, check Couchmate status, and it brings you to the status, the, the Atlassian status page for Couchmate that, like, is using Pingdom. So, yeah, it's pinging the server. Like, there's just a health check server. It's pinging, like, the marketing site. So, like, the next site. Um, it's pink and then I leverage or just like Mailgun is on there. You know, with, with status page, you can plug in a bunch of like third party providers if you use them. And so, yeah, I got a couple. Yeah, I got some of that. So, by the way, on the topic of just deployment in general, right? It sounds like you've put in a decent amount of time learning all of the setup. Like, do you have a rough estimate of like how much time so far you've put in for developing the app versus deploying it and learning all about Kubernetes and all this, you know, basically everything you need to get it deployed? Like going back to like 2013. <laughs> I mean, it's a weird question because you can't be like, well, you know, I spent 38% of my time on Kubernetes and it was like 217 hours exactly. But like, like for that stuff, like, did you find, was it just like, you know, a couple hours here and there for a couple of months to get like confident in using it? Uh, okay. So to get confident. So here's the thing. I had a background in Docker pretty extensively. I use a lot of like Docker Compose um, and stuff like that. I never got in a swarm, but I had, I've had, before I got into Kubernetes, I had a pretty extensive like um, like exposure to Docker. Um, that was crucial in adopting Kubernetes because like you have to know what containers are and the, you have to know the, the value prop of containers and everything to really fully get what Kubernetes is. And I felt like for me, the bridge was very, was much smaller. Also too, because like I had a ton of experience with AWS and like all of their products. And like, you know, I, I just knew how to deploy apps right out into these big cloud providers and how to leverage all their services. So like it was easy to transfer that knowledge almost one-to-one to to, like the Kubernetes constructs um, because, you know, they existed, they were just kind of different, right? And they're just deployed within this sphere, the Kubernetes sphere. I would probably say like, you know, it it probably took me a good couple weeks to a month to probably like gets you know to be confident that like i knew what's going on but like it's a you know it's a constant thing uh in order to like kind of evolve because like you write your first kind of kubernetes you know resource yaml right and you deploy it out and they're like all right like this is fun like you start to make a couple other ones you make one for like your service and an ingress and you know, and they're like, oh, okay, now I want to like bring in cert managers. So then you're like, oh, well now I need to start managing like multiple things. Okay. Then you look into helm or you look into customize or whatever. And then you're like, okay, well now I have like this whole stack. Like I, now I need environments on top of that. Okay. So then you're going to start to look at like, I use helm file to like manage multiple environments for helm. So like, you know, you, you have like, 
abstraction on top of abstraction in order to fully bring your app from end to end in a multi-environment setup. And like that journey took a while to get because it's one thing to learn how to deploy an app into Kubernetes. It's another thing to learn how to deploy end to end multi-environment when your entire infrastructure is based within you know the Kubernetes Helm world. That probably took me a good like year plus to get there just because like it's very expansive and like you have to learn kind of these technologies kind of also in isolation because it's really not Kubernetes anymore. Like you go into Cert Manager, you're learning about Let's Encrypt and you're learning about, you know, hooking these up to your provider and you, you know, there's just a lot more uh, moving parts. And that's not even in getting, getting in a service message if you're leveraging, leveraging, leveraging things like ContainerD or Istio or stuff like that. You know, you the, the web starts to get pretty wide. Um, and so like Kubernetes basics, I would say are pretty easy, but to like really kind of, you know, feel confident about the ecosystem itself is, you know, it'll take you a good chunk of time. Right. Interesting because our backgrounds are very, very similar. So a lot of what I've done in the past is just using Compose on one server, using Ansible to set it up and breaking down all the components of that stack, right? I have like 20 Ansible rules, but yeah, about a month sounds about what it was for me as well, mm -hmm. but not like that multi-environment stuff. But when you say that, I'm a little bit confused. Do you mean like running like a staging environment and a production environment in different namespaces on the same cluster or something or something else? No, like I'm saying like, like let's say I have like different host names um, for different environments for my ingress, but I want to use the same charts. So like, yeah, so let's say, but I just want to do just like, you know, environment dev and like it just works, right? All that configuration is already kind of stored in my YAMLs. And that's kind of what Helm file does is it lets you define, if I say I want to run Helm with this specific environment, like all of that stuff, all of the charts are genericized out to where it doesn't matter what environment you run, like, but all of that, all of those variables are, are available for whatever environment. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That's something I haven't got to yet. Like I just got set up with using Helm charts just locally on my own cluster, just like, you know, cool. I just applied something with Helm. Like, right. Yeah. But it sounds like I have a, a long journey ahead. Maybe. It's a fun one. Yeah, for sure. Now, speaking of fun stuff, do you want to maybe go over some of your best tips and lessons learned from uh, building all this out, both the app and the infrastructure? Yeah, like I I think my biggest tip is like it's going to take a while. Like it took me, like like I said, I've been doing this for eight years now. It, it, it takes a lot longer than you want it to to get to something that you're comfortable with. Like I thought I, along the way, had it figured out and I didn't. And that is discouraging. However, like if you're passionate about your project or about just learning in general, like you're going to run into roadblocks that are going to take you months to like figure out. And it's, it's, it's sad. Sometimes you just like, what, like I should be able to get this. Like I've been through all this, all this other stuff, like, but it, it really is like a commitment to learning a lot of this stuff, especially in your free time, if you can't get it at your current job. So, you know, it, I would say hold, like hang in there and like, it's, and just know that like, you're not going to learn everything in like a year or two, like to, to, to do something from soup to nuts, like from end to end is like a huge accomplishment. And I like, don't, you know, it's hard for me to like give myself any kind of props. Cause like, it's never done. Right. But like, it's it really is a feat to like be able to be completely full stack including devops like and including to deploy your whole thing out like it takes a lot of time and like it's but like if you you know if you 
are passionate about it, like you'll stick with it. But I think there's a lot of unknown unknowns when you're adopting a lot of these new technologies that, you know, you get into it and you're like, okay, this is going to take me a month, right, for Kubernetes. But like, then you discover something that like you didn't know, you didn't even know that takes you another two months to learn because you have to go back and relearn it. And so I would just say like, my biggest advice is like, be like, consistent and be have perseverance to know that it's going to be a lot longer than you thought it was to like accomplish your dreams unless you're a savant or unless like someone's throwing like a ton of money at you and you can hire a bunch of people um but like you know what they always say like it's the journey right not the not the end goal so like i take solace in the fact that like a lot of what i've done in my free time has contributed to getting me to where i'm at in my career like I wouldn't be where I'm at professionally if it, if I didn't put all this time in outside of work on learning all this stuff. So it's it's a win-win, you know. Like you might not get to where you want in your side projects, but all of that stuff that you learn is valuable just intrinsically because like you can apply that in other parts of your life, whether it's professionally or whatever. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like I'm not a hiring manager. I'm just like a self-employed solo freelance developer. But yeah, I mean, I feel like if someone like you we're approaching a job to get employed at, I'd feel like I'd want to hire you more because you've gone off the beaten path on your own and learned all the stuff and applied it to a real project. Like to me, that's much more valuable than like getting a certificate somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like, and that's why I find too is like self-taught programmers are like some of the best programmers I've ever met. Cause like they have the passion, like they wouldn't be here if like they didn't actually care about it, you know, cause they've had to put all that time up front to just learn it. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not, not saying that like, you know, people with CS degrees or, you know, who have traditional tech backgrounds or engineering backgrounds, like are anything less, but just like, you, it takes a certain type of person to be like, I want to learn how to program and to like excel at it. Yeah, for sure. By the way, throughout this whole journey of just like figuring out Kubernetes and all these different patterns and everything that you know, DevOps related, did you find yourself or maybe even programming related as well? Like, do you, do you write a lot of notes for yourself? just to go back to later. No, I write no notes. Um, I, everything is really just kind of kept in my head and like I, I've tried, but I'm just not a good note taker. Like I've tried to use like OneNote or, you know, just the notes app and OSX or, you know, whatever. But no, like I, I don't know. I, I have like a lot of leftover code that like I'll go back and reference. Cause it's just kind of like, you know, ghosts of the past that, you know, their ideas I had or, or whatever that, you know, kind of speak for themselves. But no, surprisingly, I don't really have any notes. Okay. Yeah, the ghost from the past is a cool one. Like you just keep your old code around. So you know, like, oh, this is what I used to know, but here's you know the new way to do it. And you don't lose the context of like the old way. Right. Yeah. No, I find just learning in general, like what I end up doing is like, I'll watch a video course or read a book, but it's like just in time learning mostly for me. It's like, I'm reading the thing that I'm actually applying right now, but then I tend to like comment the hell out of the code. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, I do a ton of commenting in code just because, yeah, it's hard to read your own code sometimes. But yeah, no, it's important. So Matt, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you so much. It was a blast. Yeah, this has been an awesome one. I think we just hit the two hour mark. So definitely a record, but in a great way. Awesome. So before so before we wrap this up, uh, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Oh uh, Yeah, so you can hit me up. I'm half Matt, half cat on like all social. So half Matt, half cat. Um, you can hit up uh, Couchmate, so couchmate.com. Um, you can download the app. It's on iOS or Android. Um, you can, uh, it's Couchmate HQ on all the socials. Um, so yeah. 
Nice. I'll make sure to drop all of those into the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.